Welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here today. If we have not met before, uh, my name is Austin Fisher. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And before we jump in, I have a bit of very important housekeeping duty uh, that we need to take care of. And that is to let you all know that our host team coordinator, Miss Sydney Stoles, got engaged last night. It's fantastic. It's a happy couple. Could not be happier for her and Aaron, so make sure you give them a hug, a high five, and everybody, I think everybody should also give them some marriage advice. With so much fear and so much uncertainty, um, this is a great time for the church to be the church, um, specifically, and love your neighbor. Uh, we've talked about this a lot over the last uh, several years here, uh, this challenge to get to know your neighbor, to look for ways to, uh, to serve, to meet needs, um, and, and just do what Jesus told us to do, which is to love our neighbor. And if, if, if everyone in the world loved their neighbor, then the whole world would be loved. And so um, we just wanted to remind you and really challenge you to do that. If you need to uh, go next door, knock on the door, maybe leave a note even for your neighbor, see if they have some sort of need particularly if your neighbors are older. Um, we want you to be a good neighbor to them. And so uh, just a challenge from us to be the church during this time, during this season, and let's love our neighbors well. This morning, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Austin and I uh, talked quite a bit over the last several weeks about whether we should continue in Corinthians, um, walking through that letter, or whether maybe we should shift and focus on something different for this season. Um, and what we landed on was we wanted to stay in Corinthians. Um, a lot of reasons for that, but one of the big ones is, uh, let's be honest, you're hearing a lot about coronavirus. Every station on the TV, um, all of our, our local officials, the schools are trying to figure out what they're going to do. Um, and we felt like um, we would like some sense of normalcy. And so getting back into what we were doing. Uh, Corinthians is a wonderful letter written by the Apostle Paul. And it has a lot to teach us about a lot of different things. And it's a, a real practical book, and so we wanted, to, uh, we wanted to walk through this, continue to walk through this letter together. It's ultimately uh, leading, of course, towards Easter, and 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, and so that's where we're heading. And so for those reasons, we're going to stay in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 12, where Paul is talking about um, spiritual gifts. And I know that the subject of spiritual gifts can be uh, really divisive. It can be really confusing. And so we're going to jump right in uh, this morning, and, and we're going to talk about this really important topic of spiritual gifting um, in the church. And so, um, again, glad you're here. If you have a Bible with you at home, I invite you to grab that and to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and follow along. Uh, we'll, of course, put the, uh, the text and the points up on the, the screen for you to follow along with, but we always encourage you to, to use your Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and since we haven't been in Corinthians in a few weeks, let me give you a little bit of recap. Uh, the Apostle Paul was a great missionary and church planter, and he goes to this town of Corinth. It's a really important town, a port city, uh, a lot of trade routes, uh, a really young city, a, an educated city, a diverse city, and he plants a church there in Corinth. And as was his custom, he got the church established and, and really got it growing and going, and then Paul would move on to another city to plant another church. Um, and what happens in Corinth is that after Paul leaves Corinth, things start to go badly. Uh, there's a lot of divisiveness in the church. Um, they're bickering and they're fighting and they're, they're all sort of aligning themselves under different leaders and they're practicing things that um, some people aren't comfortable with and aren't even sure they should be practicing. And so there's a lot of confusion, a lot of question. And so they write a letter back to the Apostle Paul to address some specific issues. 
And what we have in this letter of 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul writing a letter back to the church in Corinth, and he's addressing some issues that they're having, and he's trying to sort of correct them and even rebuke them in some ways. And so what we have in chapter 12 is he's getting into this idea of spiritual gifting. Because uh, some uh, new believers that had come from uh, other religions, other pagan cultish practices, they were trying to bring some of those things into the church. um, And there was a lot of confusion as to what was right, what was okay, what was not okay. And so uh, Paul is, is addressing this issue of spiritual gifting. And to be clear, when I mention spiritual gifting, what I'm talking about is a supernatural enablement and empowerment for a believer to do ministry. Um, It's different than your natural gifting or your natural talents. All of us have natural giftings and natural talents we're born with. Then we sort of practice those things, maybe get better at them as we grow. A spiritual gifting comes at uh, conversion. It comes when you become a believer. When you place your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, um, he enables you um, and and gives you a, a particular gifting. Um, maybe several giftings, but those are supernatural enablements for ministry. That's what we're talking about. And so uh, Paul is addressing these. And the reason that I say that this can be uh, divisive at times in the church and a little bit confusing is because there are some differing beliefs when it comes to spiritual gifts, uh, particularly what we call the sign gifts. So sign gifts are really the more miraculous, maybe the more supernatural gifts, uh, things like healings, miracles, prophecy, tongues. Um, A lot of Christians have some different views when it comes to those gifts in particular. And so uh, let me just mention the three views that Christians hold when it comes to the sign gifts. The The first one of those, the first view is called a cessationist view, the cessationist. And basically a cessationist believes that certain gifts are uh, no longer valid for this current age. A cessationist would say that those gifts were all very much a part of the early church. Uh, They were there to prove the ministry of the apostles, but that they are no longer valid in the church today, that those gifts are essentially dead gifts and that we don't need those gifts anymore, that God does not use those gifts in people any longer. That would be a cessationist view. Uh, The second view would be a charismatic view. The charismatic view would say, no, all gifts are valid in the church today, just as they were in the early church, but they're to be used um, with particular biblical guidelines. There are some, some rules that sort of govern the use of those giftings. And then the third view is what I would call a, a hyper-charismatic view. A hyper-charismatic view would say not only are those gifts valid today, but they are, um, they're necessary. They're necessary to prove salvation, to prove the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, And they are sort of indicative, if you will, of a deeper walk with the Lord, a deeper spirituality, and a more mature believer. And just to be clear, as a church, we sort of fall in that middle middle ground. Okay, we're not cessationists. We don't believe that gifts are dead. God can do whatever God wants to do in and through his people today, just as he did back in the early church. Um, So we don't claim that gifts are, are no longer valid or dead. At the same time, we don't believe that certain gifts are indicative of a deeper spirituality, that certain gifts, sign gifts, are in any way to prove salvation or evidence of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we fall very much in that middle, in that middle ground um, where we believe all gifts are valid, but they are to be used under the guidance of the Scriptures um, and, and so the rules that are in place. And so I say all that to say 
uh, we have kind of a wide net here. I know that there are people that are cessationists, and that's, that's their belief about the sign gifts. And then there's others in our church that, that lean more uh, charismatic or even hyper-charismatic. And so we're okay. You're welcome here. This is very much what we would call an open-handed thing. But we as a church, our position is uh, that middle ground. Um, we, in other words, we, we think one group, the cessationist, a lot of times will say, God, God doesn't work this way. God, God won't work this way. And then the hyper-charismatics will say, God must work this way. God must gift everybody this way. And so what we say is, God is God. God can do what God wants to do. And sometimes he chooses to gift people the same ways he did back then. And sometimes he doesn't. So that's just kind of an overarching kind of big picture view of the sign gifts. And so we'll get into the text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll see what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore... I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So again, Paul's writing here in Corinth uh, to address some confusion. Some people were bringing some of, the, again, the pagan cultish practices of miraculous signs and wonders into the church, but they weren't doing so pointing to Jesus. They were pointing to themselves. And so they were being blasphemous in the way they used those giftings. And so there was a lot of confusion. What is of God? What is not of God? And this is very interesting because Paul basically starts out by saying um, that ultimately these gifts are about Jesus. They're about pointing people to Jesus. They're about um, the recognition that Jesus is Lord. And so a lot of these gifts, in particular the sign gifts, even today, they're prone to being misused. And this is why some people are almost fearful or skeptical of a lot of gifting is because there's been so many that misuse these gifts. Uh, Rather than pointing to Jesus and giving God the glory, they instead point to themselves. And uh, it's about their own glory and how spiritual they are and how holy they are and how great they are. And um, as Paul introduces here in the first part of chapter 12, that would be a misuse of the gifts. And so he's just kind of laying the groundwork there. And he gets in then in verse 4. And he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And I love those verses there because it reminds us that this is is a work of the triune God. Um, Paul mentions all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, right there in those verses, okay? He says, varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. And then he says there are varieties of activities, but the same God, that is God the Father. So the idea that, again, we see the whole Trinity at work here when it comes to uh, giving someone, bestowing gifts on a believer. And so uh, we go on then in verse 7. This is a really important verse when it comes to spiritual gifting. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's the purpose right there. Gifting is for the common good. We'll come back to that uh, here in just a little bit. Then we get into, in these next verses, we get into the specific spiritual gifts. And let me just say this before we get into it. The, the gifts that he mentions here in 1 Corinthians 12, this is not an exhaustive list. So there are various places in the New Testament where there are different listings of spiritual gifts. 
and none of them are complete and, and, and comprehensive. We have listings of gifts here in Corinthians. We have list, listings of gifting in Romans. There's listings and mentions in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and in First Peter and in various places in the New Testament. And so um, I just want to make sure some people look at one particular text and they assume that I've got to have one of these giftings. But there are a lot of places where there are other giftings, and there may even be others that are not mentioned. And so I just want to make sure you understand that. For our purposes, we'll look at the ones listed here in 1 Corinthians 12, because these are the ones that Paul is addressing in the church in Corinth. But uh, there are other giftings besides the ones that are mentioned here. Um, and so here we go in verse, uh, in verse 8. He says, uh, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. So the first giftings that he mentions are wisdom and, and knowledge. Uh, now, wisdom is something that hopefully all of us pursue to some degree. Hopefully, all of us, as we grow and mature, we have a certain amount of wisdom. Um, the Bible's going to have a lot to say about wisdom, particularly in Old Testament books like Proverbs, New Testament books like James. Um, but there is this special gifting of wisdom. There are some people that just seem to uh, have extra measures of them when it comes to life. These are people that can uh, read the Bible or hear the, the Bible, and then they're real practical about how to put those things into practice, how to live life in a, in a very wise way. Maybe people that are really wise when it comes to finances. They're really good at putting budgets together. People that are, uh, that are good at helping just organize uh, your life and put together schedules and strategies. People that just have a lot of wisdom. People that have this gifting make really good life coaches. They make really good counselors. They make really great advisors because they just seem to have an extra degree or extra measure of wisdom that is from the Lord. We certainly need people like that in our church. And I believe we have a lot of people that have this gifting in our church, people that just have a lot of wisdom and they're able to share that and use that to teach and to help other people with wisdom. The second thing he mentions in that verse is knowledge. Uh, knowledge, you know, you know these people. These are people that just love to learn. They just, they seem to want to, to, to learn and to grow and to, um, they love books and they love blogs and websites and they just, they can't get enough of it, right? You know, ask someone like this, like, what did you do on spring break? Oh, I read three books. That doesn't sound like a fun spring break to me, but to some people, they just love to learn. They're continual learners and they just, they have this um, capacity for knowledge and, and study. And some people, that is just how they're wired. Uh, that's what they love to do. And so he mentions those two giftings first, wisdom and, and knowledge. Uh, then in verse 9, he mentions several other giftings. He says, To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. So the gifting of faith. Again, much like wisdom, all believers have a certain measure of faith. Uh, Hebrews is going to tell us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must have faith to some degree if we're going to be a believer, right? But there, there are people that just seem to have, again, extra measures of faith, right? These are like eternal optimists. They're the people that when they see something is impossible, they're quick to go, God's got this. God's in charge. Nothing's impossible with God. They're big vision people. When you think something is hopeless, the people with faith, they step up and go, it's not hopeless. I've seen God do whatever, right? They're people that just seem to have extra measures of faith. And again, these people are so important in the church because there are seasons and times when uh, our faith maybe wavers a little bit. We've talked a lot about skepticism and doubt, and, and, and those, are, those are real things that all people deal with and struggle with from time to time. 
So when we go through those seasons of darkness and doubt and questioning, sometimes we need these people with these, this gifting of faith. We need their faith to rub off on us a little bit, right? We need to sort of borrow some of their faith to get us through. And, and so there are people that have this extra measure of gifting and faith. They tend to, again, be big vision people. This is what God's doing. Let's go after what God's doing. God's in control. God's got this. Those are people that have the gifting of faith. Then he gets into talking about some of the sign gifts, right? Some of the more miraculous gifts that, that often lead people to be almost scared or very skeptical of. He says at the end of verse 9, the gift of healing, all right, the gift of healing. Um, and, and here's the thing about the gift of healing. At the end of the day, whenever anyone in the Bible heals someone, so we have evidence that the disciples did some healings, the apostle Paul did some healings, Peter did some healings, the early church fathers did healings. Um, ultimately, it's really not about that person doing the healing. It's about God that does the healing, right? God is the one that does the healing. Sometimes he uses people to do that healing. And so I wanted to be really clear about that. Again, it's, it's, it's a gift that is very prone to misuse, to people claiming to have the gift that really don't have the gift. Um, but do we believe that God is a God that heals? Absolutely. Um, we've seen God heal. Uh, d- there are times and seasons where uh, the medical community cannot explain a particular uh, healing or, or, or a reason that someone got better or the reason that a cancer may be left. Um, and so we believe that God absolutely, supernaturally, miraculously still heals people. And sometimes God uses his followers to do that. It means that they pray for them, and God, in his own way, in his own means, brings that healing. In the book of James, um, it mentions this is a, as something that uh, pastors and elders um, are to do, that when someone is sick, they can call the pastors and elders of a church together. They can lay hands on that person, and God, in, God can choose to heal. It doesn't mean God always chooses to heal. It doesn't mean God must heal the person. Um, it's, I always found it interesting, you know, the Apostle Paul apparently had this gifting at times where he was able to pray for someone and they would be healed. But human judgment and discipline is so cruel, so wrong, because something in our hearts is twisted and vindictive, and we love to get blood for blood, but that's not the way it works in Jesus' family, okay? And so as a general rule of thumb, if you enjoy discipline, then you're probably unfit to discipline, right? To put this another way. If you enjoy judgment, then you are probably unfit to judge because your judgment is just self-righteous condemnation. It's punishment for punishment's sake, and that doesn't have any place in Jesus' family. And yet, with all this said, okay, and all these qualifications that I have made for what healthy discipline and judgment looks like, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of us still really struggle with this idea that we are supposed to judge and discipline with each other within the Christian community. All right, I'll speak for myself. It makes me enormously uncomfortable. Uh, those of you who know me know I'm a pretty laid-back person. I don't like drama, and I especially don't like other people's drama. Like, if I walk up and somebody's talking about somebody else's drama, boy, I just, well, the other way. I got enough drama as a human being. I don't want to hear about your drama. And so I hate what Paul says here. <clears throat> I do. It makes me all kinds of uncomfortable. I try to find all different ways to explain away what he has said. But the man says what he says, and it's really clear, and it's affirmed throughout Scripture. Honestly, Jesus says the same thing. And so I'm left wondering what it is that Paul understands that I don't understand. What does Paul understand that makes him comfortable saying stuff like this? And what do I not understand that makes me uncomfortable even hearing stuff like this? 
And what I think I don't understand, and I've said this numerous times over the last few years, is that Paul thought of the church as a family. Okay, not like a family, not like a family, as a family. It was not a metaphor for Paul. And so here's my point. Modern people like you and me, we are embarrassed by Scripture's insistence that there be healthy, redemptive discipline in the church because most modern people lack the deep familial community that makes discipline normal and desirable. Okay? In other words, we're incredibly fragile and sensitive about discipline. Most of us are. Because we haven't experienced true acceptance. And we haven't experienced true acceptance because we have kept each other at a distance. And do you see how this all works together in a perfect little closed loop? We keep each other at a distance so that we can keep each other out of our business, which is nice. But in keeping each other at a distance, we also never allow ourselves to be truly known for who we really are. All of which has the cumulative effect of getting us stuck in this, hey, I won't impose upon you if you won't impose upon me. And I won't discipline you if you won't discipline me. No man's land where we're all missing out on the loving discipline and acceptance that we so desperately need. You know how this goes. I mean, some of us, self-included here, we have known people, and we've been in small groups with people for years, and we're still pretending like we just met them. I mean, how long can we pretend like we just met somebody? Some of us are trying to set a record. How long can we have the exact same conversation we had 15 years ago? (laughs) We're stuck in what I like to call friendly acquaintance limbo. Serve and worship a risen and exalted Jesus. Jesus is no longer in his incarnate state, lowly suffering servant. No, no, Jesus now has finished the work that God the Father gave him to do. He went to a cross and he gave up his life on the cross and then he ultimately went into the grave and he walked out of the grave conquering Satan's sin and death and now he is risen and exalted. Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 4, we're given a glimpse into heaven. And it says that Jesus is there and gathered around all the angels, all the people, all the heavenly beings. And their attention and their focus is on risen and exalted Jesus. And they're singing and shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So I would remind you, church, that we don't serve lowly peasant incarnate Jesus. We serve risen and exalted King of Kings, Lord of Lords Jesus. And he's not oblivious to what's going on in our world and he's not oblivious to what's going on in your life. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is worthy of our love and our devotion. He is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our lives. As I wrap it up, I want to remind you of the very first thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. In talking to these believers in Corinth, he says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. He, he says he wants you to receive this. You see, We don't just want you to hear some things about Jesus. We don't just want you to know some things about Jesus. We want you to receive 
the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus in your own life. That's what Paul wanted for the church in Corinth. Paul wanted them to receive the gospel, not just to know some things about it, but to receive it. And that's our invitation to you today on Easter Sunday. It's for you to receive the gospel into your own heart and into your own life. And then if you've already received that, the invitation is that you take your stand on that, on that truth, that you build your life around that truth. Our question is simple. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? And will you live for Jesus? That's what it means. That is what is most important. All the other stuff can fade away. All the other stuff we can talk about later. You know, it's not unimportant. Some of it's very important stuff, but it's not most important. It's not most important. What's most important is that you know and trust and receive Jesus. And that's our invitation to you today on Easter Sunday. I'm gonna pray for us and then Jordan's gonna come back out and they're gonna lead us in another song of worship. And we wanna invite you to respond. I would encourage you, don't, don't uh, you know, click off uh, really quick uh, just because the message is over. The response time is really important. And then in, even after that, don't click off. John, our executive pastor, is going to come back out. And he has some really important information for us about um, some things we're doing in the community and ways you can kind of help with that. Um, so don't, don't be quick to kind of click off. <clears throat> but all the ways that you could respond in your home are the same ways that you could respond if you were here and we were gathered together for worship. Uh, you could respond maybe just by spending some time where you are seated in prayer, confession, repentance. Just spend some time with the Lord right there where you are. As Jordan and them sing, you can do that. Maybe you wanna sing along. Maybe you even wanna stand in your living room or, or your room or wherever you are. You wanna stand and sing. Again, sing and, 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 and celebrate and worship the resurrected, risen Lord Jesus. Maybe you wanna take communion. Uh, communion is this beautiful sacrament of the church. And it is something that, um, that we receive. Um, and, and it's this tangible reminder of what Christ has. Because we've, we've turned life into this game. Where we're all just amusing. Bread, and we dip that in some juice. At, at your home, you could really use whatever you want. You can find some bread, some juice, some wine, uh, whatever you want to use but just be thankful for and remember the sacrifice of Jesus as you take those elements, as you receive those elements. You're welcome to do that during this next song. Maybe you wanna talk or pray with someone. We have some of our prayer team members that are standing by and they are ready, willing, and able to talk with you, to pray with you. Um, you're welcome to uh, call the number here that is on your, uh, on your screen. I know it's a 512 area code, but rest assured, that's just the number that we got. Uh, it will take you to one of our church's prayer team members. Maybe you're not sure if you belong to Jesus. Maybe you're not sure if you've received Jesus into your life. They would be happy to talk with you and pray with you about, about what that looks like and what that means and how you can do that. So I would encourage you, you can, uh, you can call or you can even text that number. And we have people in our church that'd be happy to be praying along with you right now. Maybe you'd like to give an offering. There's a lot of ways that you can give. You can, you can give online, you can give via text. I do wanna just say, I know we may have many that are tuning in that are not members here. Maybe you're just a guest. Uh, we're not after your money. 
we're not after your money. God's been very good to us. Um, and so if you're a guest, we're not asking you to give a dime. But I know for our regular members and our regular attenders, that's, a, that's one of the ways we encourage them to worship. People who radically shared their stuff with each other, who treated their private property like it wasn't their private property because they believed that it wasn't. They saw a people who welcomed in strangers and didn't just treat them like friends. They brought in strangers and treated them like family. Or as this early Christian theologian named Minicius Felix put it, and I love this, it's so simple but so clear. He says, it is the beauty of our life that encourages strangers to join our ranks. Not the power of our arguments or our political, no, no, no. It is the beauty of our life that causes strangers to join our ranks. And here at the Vista, we talk a lot about the importance of feeling loved, welcomed and wanted. Someone's gonna say that from the stage every Sunday that you're here because we think it is really important and it's really important because Jesus has said that everybody is loved, welcomed and wanted. But if there's anything that I have learned over the years, it's that we don't just wanna feel loved, welcomed and wanted. I mean, you want that, but that's not all you want. No, you wanna be holy. You wanna be holy because you want Jesus to accept you just as you are, of course, but you don't want him to leave you that way, do you? Right? Any of you like, hey, this is, I'm finished version right here, man. Like, this is good, this is as good as this getting, buddy. No, you all, your spouse is like, no, you're a beta at best, right? You got some work to do, man. That's all you are. And so we want Jesus to accept us, yeah, but we want him to transform us. We don't just want Jesus to accept our anxiety. We want him to transform it into courage. You want Jesus to take your selfishness and transform it into greed, to take your cruelty and transform it into mercy. Because if you just want to be welcomed and wanted, then you can join the Girl Scouts or Dollar Shave Club, man. But you're here at a church because some part of you wants to be holy. And that can be our little secret. That's fine. But you're here today because some part of you down deep wants to be holy. Or your spouse wants you to be holy, either one. And so to bring this full circle... There is a reason why Luke, the writer of Acts, places this you know, awesome, warm picture of radical sharing in Acts 4 right beside this bizarre, shocking story of lies, possessions, and greed in Acts 5, right? And you've got to notice stuff like that when you read the Bible. Why are these two stories put right together? What's Luke trying to tell us? Well, it would appear that Luke's trying to tell us that the holiness of the church matters. Radical sharing and generosity were central to the beauty of the church's witness. And so when that radical sharing uh, and giving got compromised by Ananias and Sapphira and the church became just another place where people lie, where people are greedy, something had to be done because the world needs us to be holy. Will Willimon, he's this cranky Methodist bishop, uh, and here's what he says, I love it. He says the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb. People don't care about an empty tomb, man. But rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. That's what draws people to Christian faith, not the empty tomb. People don't care for the empty tomb. It's 2,000 years ago, and they're like, eh, I don't know. A, a way of life, though, that's different, that's what draws people in. And just to be clear here, the world needs us to be holy, but our holiness is not a matter of us being perfect. Okay, hopefully that goes without being said. But our holiness does not look like a bunch of perfect and perfectly behaved people behaving perfectly together. Now, instead of looking like that, our holiness looks more like this. And this is a picture from last Monday night, Regeneration, our new recovery ministry, our first ever meeting. And last Monday night, we had over 100 people show up for that. And we came bringing every kind of addiction you can imagine, man. Uh, porn, yep. 
alcohol, yep, drugs, anxiety, ego, you name it, and we got it, man. It was in that room. And there was this electricity in the room. If you were there, then you know what I'm talking about. Because it was a room full of people who had gathered together and they finally weren't pretending like they had it all together. (laughs) It was a group of people who were gathered together not because they had it all together but because they knew they did not have it all together. Because the beauty of our holiness is not our perfection but our willingness to confess our imperfection, okay? The beauty of our holiness, the beauty that will draw in and has for thousands of years a broken, crooked world is not our perfection, but is our willingness to repent, to say, I messed up and I'm sorry, to tell each other the truth, to radically share our stuff because Jesus has taught us that our stuff is not our stuff. Jesus has taught us that our stuff is our stuff. And that not pseudo-perfection, is the beauty of our holiness and the beauty that will draw in a broken, hurting world. It has for thousands of years, and it still does, and we have the guts to live it out. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we confess that quite often we are sleepwalking through our lives, amusing ourselves to death with our stuff and with our toys, acting like nothing's really at stake. And so this morning, help us to hear that call from the Spirit of God, the call to a life of truth-telling, repentance, radical sharing, and a severe but very beautiful holiness. And God, we are thankful that that call is not a call for us to get our act together and become perfect people who act perfectly because that is not in the cards for any of us. No, the call you place on us is a call to confess our imperfection and to trust in your enormous mercy. So we ask that you would make us holy so that the world could experience the beauty of a living God and the lives of broken but very loved people like us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So we're gonna give ourselves a few moments to respond now. Um, and if you're, you're new here, what I mean is this. Uh, it's a few moments to slow down. Don't run, go get your kids. They're fine, I promise. Don't think about Monday. Don't think about what you're gonna eat for lunch. Be here where your feet are. Let God get beneath the surface and do the deeper work that God probably wants to do today. You can respond by standing and singing, by sitting and praying. You can respond by receiving communion. It's this big family meal, because we're a family where we received the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We got tables on the side, in front of the sound booth, and at the top in the race seating. Or maybe you need to respond by just talking to somebody. Man, God's worked on your heart this morning. You know there's something going on, but you don't know how to process it. We got some people in front of the sound booth with lanyards who would love to talk to you about that and about what God's doing. So respond however you want, but you're never gonna get this moment back. So you might as well be here where your feet are and respond.